All right, friends, how's it going? Zig coming in at the top of the interview. Today, I have James Mushler on the show. You might know James from the band Moon Hooch, which he played drums with for the last 10 years. He's also been embarking on some solo adventures. James has a, a new release coming out called The Evolution of Life Forms on Earth. It's a concept piece. It's a sonic meditation in which one experiences the journey from nothingness to single cell organism to human life. Deep. Yeah. And that should be coming out Valentine's Day of 2021. So if this is out and it's not out, wait longer. Anywho, James has been a near and dear friend for Sea level We met him at Negative Space at one of the Negative Space anniversary shows. And he came up and played with us. And ever since then, anytime he's been in town, he's jumped on stage with us. And it's brought, like, as a group, Sea level has been inspired by moon hooch and by james playing and and just just his presence he's one of these guys that's always in the moment and always positive and fun to be around so we couldn't be thank more thankful for meeting james and having him uh hang out with us and jam with us and on our new record that sea level's got coming out he's uh recorded some tracks so that'll be something the to send your way eventually before we get into the podcast this podcast is mixed by studio 44 studio 44 cle jay sparrow from studio 44 will make any of your audio needs sound the maximum uh, will take them to the maximum potential that they need to get to studio 44 cle you can reach jay at studio 44 cle at gmail.com or studio 44 on facebook and all the other fun stuff you can reach out there he does video work he does streaming he does a uh, mixing he can be your band if you need someone to record any of the instruments you find in the band just about jay is the guy you need to hit up also if you hear anything you like, if you can like, subscribe, rate, review the podcast on any of the podcast platforms, we are now on YouTube, um, also on the social media aspect of it, Twitter and Instagram and the Facebook. But if you can comment, rate, review the podcast, it helps me keep talking to these inspiring people and keep trying to inspire you guys and myself. I need to be inspired. I need I need more people to pick their brains at so to keep mine going. Thank you, guys. Without further ado, James Mushler. But um, but what about you, man? What's been going on since uh, the record sesh? <clears throat> well, man, just um, been doing a lot of practicing. There's been a lot of roadblocks with the evolution piece that are kind of out of my control. So I've just been keeping myself busy, just working yeah. on some other music and practicing and listening to Coltrane. Man, Coltrane's been like my savior. Yeah. Dude, I listen to Coltrane like every day. Damn, what Coltrane okay. have you been getting into? Um, uh, you know that recording, one down, one up, live in the half now. Yeah. So I've been listening to that like pretty much every day. Actually, um, on my Patreon, I uh, I I listen to it and just like make commentary on it. What? Um, That's awesome. We're going to start yeah. the interview with you saying you've been listening to Coltrane every day. That's we're we're jumping into it now, but that's nice. <laughs> so, oh, that's okay. Cool, cool. What other Coltrane have you been digging into? Um, well, I uh, I think maybe like my favorite year is nineteen sixty five. Okay, I mean sixty six, sixty seven. It's like next level, but yeah. sixty five is like you know that was the time when like Jimmy Garrison and you know. 
Elvin Jones and McCoy yeah. Tyner, they were all playing together, the classic quartet. And uh, nothing against, you know, Rashid Ali, obviously, or like Alice Coltrane, but that group, man, it's like the first note every single time. It's just like, boom, it's like instant death. Yeah. And I've been checking out McCoy Tyner's voicings a lot, like all that like sus, like sus- mm-hmm. like that suspended feeling, just kind of like, rolling in motion it's It's, uh it's it's really special like i i haven't really heard any other music that has that kind of like um elvin jones has that like triplet subdivision that like rolling triplet feel yeah and like the the downbeat every bar is not really as important and like a lot of times like especially in 1965 McCoy will like hit the downbeat and then Elvin will come come in on the end of one or vice versa or like the end of four, like come in on two or something. And I've been trying to like analyze like the kind of musical choices they're Hmm. making based on like what Coltrane is playing. Hmm. And I'm realizing that like when Coltrane is marking something in like pretty easily metrically dissected way, that's when like Elvin and McCoy are like really stretching the time, like making like a macroscopic kind of rhythmic feel. Hmm. And that when Coltrane is like reaching and like soaring in the altissimo or like when McCoy drops out and it's just Jimmy Garrison, Elvin train, or if it's just Elvin and train, then like the down becomes more important. And, uh, I've just been, I've just been geeking out on that year in particular. Wow. There's this, um, Actually, this morning I listened to uh, My Favorite Things, 1965. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this live video on YouTube, it's like 20 minutes long. And uh, that's that's really interesting. That's in three. Yeah. And like, the way Elvin especially plays three is like, I don't know, man, it's deep. I've been, I've been geeking out on it. It's interesting, especially when you get to that song, like there's like a with the form compared to the um like the Broadway piece, right? There's like they don't go to the C section until like after an, an absurd amount of doing like the A and B. You know what I mean? Like where, I'm trying to think of a yeah. I can't even remember. My the favorite words. things is a good example of that. Yeah, because and there's like this little hang over each like time it goes around like there's an extra bar of whatever like e minor or whatnot and like it makes that space and it makes this almost loop and like it's a it's a very coltrane-esque thing and it's weird because that was a pop song at the time you know and like it, it kind of fills into what you're saying with like or what you've been noticing with structure especially during that time period where like the band's following Coltrane tight when he's loose and loose when he's tight. Like it's such an Uh interesting thing. You don't realize unless you really dissect. And that I think speaks so highly of all those guys and how they would like elevate Coltrane or elevate the group. And like when you're playing in a, an ensemble like that, that's what you do. You like find ways to whoever is taking the lead, how to lift them. Yeah. So did you um, kind of make this more into your, your realm when you were playing with the Cleveland Jazz Project, did you notice uh, that? Um, yeah, with the Cleveland Jazz Project, you know, like, we were all buddies. Yeah. So, like, we know each other on, like, a personal level as well as musical. So, uh, with that group, like, there was that element of trust, you know. Yeah. That, 
same kind of like oh sorry about that i can wait say it again oh uh, can you hear me now i can yeah i don't know <laughs> okay. sorry about that no you're good um yeah that that like like we were all like pretty proficient music you know musicians like at the time already like all of us and we were familiar with each other's playing so there was that element of trust and uh that like mentality that we were willing to go in any direction at any time and it was going to be okay yeah um you know more or less um yeah, that group was all about the music too. Like I've been, I was, I've just been really like checking out music that's like all about the music. And for me, Coltrane's the the epitome of that. Definitely Not to back to back to Coltrane, but <laughs> no, it's all good. I, uh, I just listened to John Coltrane. It's hard um, not Coltrane's one of those figures that like, or Jimi Hendrix, or like one of those one of those innovators that will always be inspiring because all their work is just innovation it's like growing from like even looking at the kind of touching back so you've been diving into like the 60s period where it was like a structured thing it's before like before love supreme it's before like he really went off into this different direction right and like there's a lot you can see that he's changing standards or like playing within the form and it's almost easier to, to see how innovative someone is when they fuck with the form does that make sense? Or like it when mm-hmm. they when they expand something you expect or build upon that in a way that you're like, oh, I know that song, but that's that's such a Coltrane way to do it. Or there's the like how you you brought up the voicings, like by adding sus voicings, it may make this more of a space as opposed to like moving in fourths or you know, what I mean, like it's easier to kind of see the innovation than when there is a lack thereof structure or the the structure is a is a, is a grander thing because it involves more like analyzing uh huh yeah i mean there's nothing wrong with structure i mean you know yeah. Col- coltrane quartet is always like working with the structure more or less but they're also like musicians where it's like here's the new downbeat is like not a problem you know yeah like, here it is and uh who's someone else like like jacob Sachs is like that i don't know if you know jacob Sachs. he's this uh pianist that um uh, plays uh, a lot with Dan Weiss, who was okay. my drum teacher in New okay. York. And uh So, uh, let's talk yeah. about Dan a little bit. When you went to New York, um that was right out of high school, right? Like, yeah. okay. And then he introduced you to a whole bunch of things, right? He's got got you going down like the studying tabla and expanding your music in that way. Absolutely. Um, yeah, with Dan, actually, I, before I went to New York, I, I didn't know who Dan was. Yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> I went to this place called the 55 Bar, I think, in the fall of 2000, uh, 2000, 2007. Okay. And I went, and I, I knew, I knew Dave Binney, a sax player. I didn't know anyone else in the band. That was actually Dave Binney, Jacob Sax on, like, Nord Keyboard, I think, mm-hmm. Dan Weiss, and then Thomas Morgan on bass. And um, when I heard Dan, it was like a similar feeling that I got when I first heard um, Eric Harland, who's mm. the reason that I decided I wanted to be a musician. I heard him at nighttime with the Aaron Goldberg trio, I think yeah. in like 2005 or something. But um, with Dan, it was like, 
there's musicians that like touch your heart when you listen to them. Yeah. And there's musicians that kind of like stimulate your, um, your intellect. Yeah. And for me, Dan was like a combination of both those things when I first heard him. Like there was, um, you could say there's like a complexity behind his playing, mm-hmm. but it wasn't complex for the sake of being complex. It was, it was like, um, like similar, similar to the feeling Coltrane, you know, like yeah. critics of Coltrane when he started like really going off, they like call it like math music, and that was like a good or a bad thing, and that was like a talking point in the jazz community and music community. But um, yeah, with Dan, it was like it was all like from the heart, and also like very stimulating to the um, intellect. And he was he was doing things on the drums that I just had never heard before. So, um, New School had this uh, has this program where if you um, pass proficiency, mm-hmm. um, then you can study with whoever you want. Uh, I think nine lessons per semester, and you can divide it up like six lessons with this person, three with this person. Oh, okay, cool. So um, that semester, I did six lessons with Dan and three lessons with William Parker. Yeah, but. Uh, my first lesson with Dan, I, he was like, why do you want to study with me? And I was like, well, I heard you have the 55 bar and he blew my mind away. <laughs> I told, I, you know, I t- basically told him what I told you. Yeah. And then we immediately started <clears throat> diving into tabla repertoire. Huh. So that was our first exposure to like Eastern rhythms. Yeah. Wow. And like uh, trying to wrap your head around that, what was that like? Because kind of, kind of coming from like, what, what was your background before you dove into jazz? Was it rock? Was it like, because you, you play a little bit of everything, which I don't know if everyone knows, but like, as far as drumming, what was kind of your background before you, or was it always jazz? Um, well, with drumming, I guess, uh, first, my first exposure to like playing percussion was like, um, playing in, in the orchestra at school. Okay. So, um, when I was like 12 years old, I was just like, I want to learn how to play the drums. And at that time I was listening to bands like Korn okay. and System of a Down, Limp Biscuit, yeah, yeah, and, uh, The Offspring and, uh, Incubus, you know, so like kind of like nineties rock and like a little bit of like started listening to a little bit of like punk rock and ska music shortly after that. Okay. And, uh, yeah, actually the first thing I transcribed was this this i forget the song it was it was by corn and uh, the drums were super cool and then after that i transcribed a little bit of the incubus drummer and uh rage against the machine actually gotcha yeah that's so it very that was the first thing i transcribed was uh was Battle of los angeles oh okay uh, yeah well, it's so even that even in the concept of like transcribing. So music before drums, what were you playing? Was there something else before? Because you don't really transcribe something until you're kind of involved in mu- like you know what I mean. Like that's more of a like a couple steps into the music realm thing, thinking about writing it out. You know. So mm-hmm. was there a were you playing piano or something before? Um. Actually, yeah. So I uh, when I was five, I started taking piano lessons. Okay. And. Um, uh, her name is Linda Miller. She's a pianist, and actually, she's more well known as a flute player. Huh. Um, and she's based out of Cleveland. Okay. Um, but like, I mean, she was trying to get me to learn reading music. I I didn't really have like the attention span or like the 
you know, that was pretty much it. <laughs> like most five year olds. I didn't have the discipline to like, you know, like actually practice the piano. So yeah. I, I kind of like learned through osmosis a bit through like having lessons with her and um, learned uh, the, like the first part of this nutcracker piece. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, at an early age, I learned like a lot through osmosis, like being exposed to that. And also, um, <clears throat> uh, I went to this preschool called the, um, what is it? The, uh, <laughs> 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 it was something with music in the name. Um, uh, I don't know. <laughs> oh, the music, the music settlement. Oh, the, no shit. Okay. 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 Preschool. Yeah. Gotcha. Huh. So so actually yeah, i remember actually i don't remember but vaguely i've seen videos of like running around the room with this tambourine yeah and it's so funny like so much about me is like encapsulated in that video <laughs> like at the time like the uh linda miller actually she was the teacher oh the okay she was like all right everyone who's wearing pink stand up and run around with the tambourine and like i got up like wearing blue like <laughs> started running around um yeah so piano was first and actually i tried to play saxophone in the fourth yeah. grade okay um, but i got discouraged because like um uh, i mean i wasn't really practicing either but yeah. i couldn't you know i was just squeaking everyone else playing c major scale and you know, came to me my turn, and I, was, I just kind of, like, looked around the room, like, shifty-eyed, like. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the saxophone, I picked that up later, you know, after yeah. I met Jackson Wenzel. And, and did they uh, help you fine-tune it, or were you, like, kind of picking, apart, picking it at it before you got um, with those guys? Like, were you still working at it a little bit? Because you rip on the sax. Like, I remember <laughs> stepping in to hear some of the uh, seeing you guys you and isaiah mix some of the stuff for uh, your new project you got coming out and you just be dabbling on piano and like dabbling on like sax and just like ripping whatever and it's like fuck that, how can you be so comp uh, uh, competent and amazing on drums and just able to do all this and like so were you always kind of picking at these things and then found someone that kind of helped you like expand upon it or when you met Wenzel and those guys did they like did it just click because you're hanging out with saxophone players and like it, that's the more of the osmosis thing um well it's not like i can play every instrument i mean with the <laughs> piano um you know like definitely like a lot of like um my experience with the piano has been like dabbling and like yeah. um, translating like stuff i learned for classical percussion onto the piano and like you know, like learning technique and like learning how to play like C major scale kind of came secondary. But yeah. Saxophone. Um, I mean, John Coltrane has always been like my musical hero. It's mm. funny that we started the conversation there. But, um, you know, uh, actually Mike sold me my first soprano saxophone. Mm. And uh, he was like, we were all living in an apartment building in Brooklyn together. And uh, he was, um, he was selling it. And I was like, like, I want to learn sax, you know, like Moonhooch was already, you know, we had already started. I was like, that'd be yeah. cool. Like, I'll try it out. So, so I bought that from him and then learned chromatic scale. And then, you know, like when we were on tour, I would like sometimes wake up early and like go for like a sax walk is what, what we call it. Okay. Basically just walk around with the saxophone. And for me, that was really liberating as a drummer. Cause like, 
you know, like, especially in the subway days, like I'd have to like lug my drum set down there and like, you know, they'd be ripping. I'd still be like setting up my kit and like, <laughs> you know, like I'd be like, it would take like forever to break down. And like, yeah. it's really nice to have an instrument you can just kind of like whip out and like, it's like Im- immediate, like start making music on it. Yeah. So, so for me, like saxophone was like a quite literally breath of fresh air, hmm. you know, in that way. Um, but, uh, yeah, I went through a period of practicing tabla and saxophone, uh, more than the drums for probably maybe like four years. Yeah. And was this like, uh, was this, okay. So kind of the backtrack you, uh, in like in fourth grade, right. You're working on, you get discouraged from sax and then when do drums come in? When does the kit come in? Um, so I remember fourth grade. So whatever age that be. Um, I, I remember I was 12 years old when I, when I started playing drums. Okay. So I think maybe that was like sixth grade. Okay. That yeah, that right? seems about right. Um, well, let's, let's go with that. I'm horrible with ages. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm, I'm really bad with it. Like, as a teacher, I should know all that, but I don't because everyone's different ages and I just, I gave up on it. But, um, okay, so, okay, that makes sense. And then, then to kind of step it up ahead, when does jazz become, like, is that in high school? Like when you start really digging into like um, more than that rock was, tunes, yeah, that was high school. Okay, and uh, the progression of that, um, I was like, I was like total total ska kid, like yeah, like just like totally in love with ska music, like real big fish um, and real big fish, yeah, um, like um, me two tone uh, ska the, stuff or like uh, just like ska and also like um, well, I was in this band called the Catastrophes. Nice. Um, at the time yeah dude yeah um with uh max stern on guitar who still makes great music all the time um and john Hanna, he was the bass player he's okay. a producer down in nashville now wow but um yeah so we were like covering catch 22 and real big fish and writing our own songs and like i was that was like my first expo or my first like attempt at like writing music was in that yeah. band and uh, I started playing trumpet at the time. I was like, trumpet's the coolest thing. So I started learning a little bit of trumpet. And then that exposed me to Arturo Sandoval. Because mm-hmm. I, I heard Arturo play. And I was like, this is the craziest shit I've ever heard. <laughs> and then like started listening to Arturo. And he was playing like Latin jazz. And then um, when I was switching, this is a long story. So when I, no, when I switched schools, when I went to the Cleveland Heights High School, I wanted yeah. to join the jazz band after like listening to Arturo yeah and uh there was a drummer in there that was just way better than me so I I didn't make it the first year but I got to be in a jazz combo and I really wanted to be in jazz ensemble so like that's when I started practicing jazz and trying to learn like jazz coordination and um at the time saving grace Ryan Louie who's like who was my mentor and uh my biggest inspirations definitely um exposed me to a whole world of jazz he he was the first one to show me um miles davis is kind of blue mm. and like talk about like conceptual things in music and like improvisation and musical choices and alongside that he's also a great timpanist from the sioux falls orchestra and marimba player so I started uh, learning timpani and marimba and then jazz drum set with him and latin drum set and he was the first teacher that came along and said, like, you got practice, man. <laughs> he was like, 
total, total, um, you know, just like, just real. And yeah. it's such a fun way to be like, he's such a fun and like goofy and just like, just super awesome dude. So I was really inspired by him and I wanted to come to those lessons prepared. And I started to like really fall in love with music at the time. Mm. So, so because of Ryan Louie, I started practicing and um, like after school, I would come home and just start practicing and um, until like it was too late to practice. And <laughs> I was just like overcome with this, like, like I, I was just like determined and just yeah. in love drumming at the time now what did it so it, it it's interesting because with music you play music right it's it seems like this unstructured thing but to get to this point of playing it's like this rigid um rigid formatted like work ethic right there's a lot of dedication to get to the expression of the freedom of expression um what did what did what uh, through those early years? What was like a rehearsal like or um, a practice like? What would you shed on, and how does that compare to like now? Did some of those trends like continue? Was it like working on rudiments, working on like um, technique, or uh, working on uh, more practical things like feel and groove into or all of it to some degree? And does that make sense of the question? Like, mm, yeah, yeah. How did that practice um, regiment evolve, or was it solid at the beginning and still works now? And what's that look like? Um, I mean, you know, then like it is now, like it's all, it was all like applicable to what I was doing. Yeah. So I wanted to be in the, in the big band at school. So yeah. me and Ryan were working on, um, you know, big band playing and like how to, how to um, play drums in a big band and like how to like set up fills and set up hits and stuff like that. And talking about like the creativity behind that. And then also at the same time working on rudiments because I was actually um, in the marching band as well. Because at my high school, it was either either you were in the marching band or you had to play after school sports. Mm. <laughs> and I was like, I want to be in the marching band, you know. <laughs> this will pay off more. So, so I started on quads yeah. the first year and then I was on snare the last two years. So yeah, we were working on a lot of like rudiments and like marching band practice and then also in in my lessons with ryan and uh big band playing and he got me into um reading some some books yeah. uh, like like the what? art of pop drumming by okay. john riley and then his second book beyond pop drumming by john riley hmm. john riley is actually dan weiss's teacher from manhattan school of music oh, like no shit. weird how that tied in later but uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, it's all connected. Um, yeah. And then also Jim Chapin's uh, drum book and this book called Stick Control. Those were like okay. the four books that spent a lot of time. And also Steve Houghton's, um, uh, he's a guy from the University of North Texas. He's got this great book about big band playing and it's got a bunch of examples on how to like set up uh, drum fills and stuff like that or set up like big band hits. Hmm. And, uh, by the way, man, I, I love talking about music and this, this is a trip, like going back in time. I really appreciate you uh, having me on. I appreciate you doing this, man. Like I've always been a fan of your work and like, and, and, and lucky to consider you a friend and like we get to make music uh, oh, randomly. And, uh, so this is a, the, I'm super stoked to have this conversation with you. Um, so awesome. 
like, okay, so you're exposed to all these things. What was kind of the common takeaway? Like, if you had to look back and be like, working to be in jazz, because jazz combo is a lot different than jazz ensemble, and, and marching band's a lot different than, like, um, classical, like, classic drumming, or being in a classical ensemble or an orchestra. There we go, I said it right. Um, what would be, like, if the amalgamation from all these experiences before you leave high school, What what's kind of the takeaway? Does that make, like, was it, like, learning how to really understand how rhythm can be applicable in different situations? Was it just being ready to handle all these situations? Like, being kind of like a, like, in, in the weird world of music, you have to do a million different gigs. Like, one day you're recording a sound bit for a commercial, and the next day you're playing on stage, or you're playing in a in a, in a kennel for, for dogs, or what, you know what I mean? Like, when you dive into music, everything gets to be random, and, like, you got to be ready for everything in some way. But there's always kind of like a takeaway from all these these things you experience with like your high school music career. What would you? Is there a specific takeaway you can kind of look back on? Was it like learning how to be dedicated? Was it learning how to understand rhythm, or like the dive into music you don't know? Um. Well, uh, I mean, then you know, like it is now, like it was just really fun. You know, like okay. it was, it was <laughs> Even just really enjoyable, like <laughs> yeah. having that hang and like being a part of the jazz ensemble and like being a part of the jazz combo. And then also just falling in love with the music, you know, jazz and the spirit of improvisation was um, just like very new to me at the time and really exciting, you know, like it is now. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, I guess the takeaway, I guess, would be. I was, I was just like, I was just like having a lot of fun, just like living that. Yeah. And like ha- having some sort of like purpose, you know, for myself. Cause before that I didn't really like know what I was going to like do. And I didn't really, you know, I guess at yeah. the time I, I wasn't thinking like, I want to be a, you know, musician or whatever, like as a profession. Um, until I saw Eric Harland when I was 17 and that was the year before I left, um, okay. high school you know so um but i was like you know on my way to like sort of that um that epiphany and uh you know like my manifesto for like playing music is was a little bit different than it is you know then than it is now you know now it's like you know every musician has to ask themselves at a certain point it's like okay, well, why play music? Like, is this just for, like, my fun and my satisfaction? Um, And, like, in the beginning, it was a little bit more, I was just, like, uh, personally just, like, into the idea of, like, um, creative and intellectual exploration in that idiom. But now it's, like, um, you know, I think music is just a really powerful tool. And, like, after, like, seeing so many, like, music festivals and uh seeing like how music impacts a lot of people's lives it's um it's become more that like just the just um like um just like being in you know paying attention to the fact that music is important you know it has it has value and it it does have this tremendous um ability to sort of bring people together from and the subway was kind of like the 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 first catalyst in like really understanding that in a really Mm. tangible way it's like wow all these people all different ages all different backgrounds demographics they're all getting together because like 
we're just making this music on the subway and like where else where else does that happen really yeah in a way that's it it's 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 almost like the purest way to catch people or to, to see how it affects people and that's a i think that's a really interesting question you pose uh or you propose is like why do you do it is it for self-validation or is it for um achieving something more than that and like it's interesting because in high school or even throughout life, a lot of times people are trying to figure out who, what they are or what they what they're supposed to do. And I think, I know personally with with music, I lucked out and was like, I'm going to try to organize these sounds, and that's going to be it. You know what I mean? Like I'm going to arrange these sounds, and that's that's what I do. But it, it it it's a direction, and a lot of people don't have a direction. And like, even if it goes nowhere or amounts to nothing, just having this sense of a direction is more fulfilling than the lack thereof. Because a lot of people kind of wander around trying to find that direction and still are. And eventually they will, you know what I mean? Like everyone finds the thing. But um, to luck out with it in high school is so cool because then you're, you, you don't know where you're going to go, but you know you're going to somehow do this thing. And like... That's super cool that it, it mounted to this thing, and you had this, um, this you knew you were gonna pursue that and not know where it was gonna go, and somehow all this training and all these schools and all these exp- uh, exposures to um, pros led to playing in the subway, which leads to like a life changing experience. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like how how crazy the kind of two settings are. It's so uh-huh. cool. And like, it's been a blessing, man. I I feel so grateful. And um, likewise to you, man. Like the concert we played the other, you know, like it's oh, thanks, man. and like, you know, like your energy and getting, you know, that concert together to like benefit those venues and like bring all these people together, like in the middle of a pandemic and like, you know, like a social distance masked way. Like, well, I appreciate that. It, was really, uh, that was really beautiful, man. So. Thank, and thank you so much for doing it. Um, for the listeners, we Sea uh, Level did an anniversary concert that was a benefit for the Grog Shop in the Beachland, and we brought up friends for each song. James being one of them. Um, but yeah, like I when I was in high school, I had a kind of a crazy um, experience where I went on tour with the band State Radio. Um, they're a Boston band that would do this really badass thing where every city they would go into, they would do a service project, and they would like paint the park or or clean up the benches and like then you get to hang out if you're a fan you can hang out with the band and um then they did a couple tours and i went on it as part of the nonprofit. and to me that showed me like music can be more than just a self-serving thing like listen to how i feel it's like you can inspire other people to pursue what they're doing you can lead by example by indulging what you truly love to do but it can be put in a way where it it inspires and allows others to do the same in a way that's going to benefit themselves or other people and um so that's always been kind of an mo for um myself musically and it's really cool to hear like i'm not the only one that has that had that weird crazy like thought in their head and like had to pick it you know find a way to move past the the self-indulgence thing of it because it can be kind of like me 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 you know what i mean like <laughs> <laughs> well you know especially like coming from like the you know like the jazz world yeah, like yeah, yeah. in jazz i feel like you see that that like musicians get kind of lost in their own world like mm-hmm. more so than than in other 
genres, you know, like, you know, well, you know, jazz, you know, like in the beginning, you know, like when jazz was like more well-defined and it was like a new art form, it was, you know, it was black expressive music, you know, yeah. it's like it had a purpose that was like really heavy and culturally significant. And, um, it sort of became like academic, uh, how do you say that? Academized. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. In the and, world of uh, academia, institu- institutionalized, there we go. you know, and then, um, you know, because of that and other factors, um, um, the spirit of the music was kind of taken out of context and context and like over into like, you know, it was kind yeah. of like rebellious music in the beginning. It was sort of like, Punk rock. Blue- yeah, so totally. It was like sort of like, like, uh, like blues tradition with like punk rock mentality on like Western harmony, you know, it was like really just like, um, and now you see a lot of musicians sort of like, um, you know, in the jazz world sort of get like, uh, yeah, yeah. Like what I just said, just kind of like lost in their own world. And like, and it's easy to do. I'd imagine. Oh, sorry. Oh, no, I was going to say, it'd be easy to do in that realm because it's already kind of like niche in a way. And like when you look at the heroes of that realm, it's kind of celebrated as one person per se. You know what I mean? Like when you think of jazz, you think of like Miles Davis or John Coltrane, not to, you know what I mean? But it, it's kind of a center figure and it's easy to kind of like try to replicate that and be, this is my sound. This is, you know what I mean? Not to uh-huh. trash it or anything or not to like, it, it, whatever. But like, um, sorry, I cut you off. Oh no! Okay. Uh, um, I forgot what I was gonna say. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. Well, anyway, how do we get from um, how do we get from studying with Dan to meeting One Soul and and the beginning of Moon Hooch and? So um, actually, my f- uh, so I knew uh, Wenzel for a year before I met Mike. So okay. um, when I first got to New York, me and Wenzel just like instantly had a connection. We, you know, we were like, um, we really enjoyed just playing with each other, and like we we were both just really like fiery, like dedicated practicers, and like yeah. you know, and like kind of like a competitive kind of not with each <laughs> other, but like you know, we just really wanted to, like, um, practice all the time. How many <laughs> hours did you shed? Oh. Bonded on that, on that love, like, creative exploration and, like, yeah. um, having that be, like, a dynamic, um, uh, dynamic, you know, relationship between both of us. Um, so, like, almost every day we'd be like, all right, like, like I got the practice room at this time, like, are you free? Like, you know, let's shed, let's like, um, let's play like Coltrane tunes. We, we bought it on Coltrane too. Like, um, him as a sax player, obviously. It's funny. It's like me, Mike and Wenzel, our musical hero collectively is Coltrane. Like without Coltrane's music, I'm not even sure if like Moon Hooch would have formed at all. Hmm. Um, but yeah, uh, actually I was in a, in an ensemble with Wenzel. Okay. Um, and so we also had that um we also had that and then um uh the next year mike had uh come from university of amherst massachusetts or yeah. university, Mass- university, uh, university of massachusetts 
in Amherst. And um, <laughs> this is a funny story. So the so the first time uh, Mike and Wenzel uh, had uh, interaction. Yeah. Uh, I guess you'd call yeah. It wasn't really a direct interaction. So <laughs> All right. <laughs> Mike Mike uh Mike like got up so there's this uh it's called a listening session, I think. It's okay. like um all the new students get up on stage and like one of them calls a tune and then they all play it. Oh, that's nerve wracking. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was for a lot of people. <laughs> and uh um there was like a panel of judges that would like um basically analyze your playing and decide you know like which tier of like some specific class you get into you know like is this person going to be in rhythm one two or three is this person going to be in ear training one two or three are they going to be in like um uh harmony class like one two or three so and like one of the like one of the judges is like Reggie Orkman who, you know, played with John Coltrane. It's like, Whoa. you know, yeah. masters in the audience, like judging you. And, um, <laughs> so, uh, so, um, this group got up on stage and Mike was called up and, um, <clears throat> and once I was there in attendance, I guess. And, uh, Mike got up on stage wearing sunglasses and, uh, just like Abercrombie and Fitch sweater. And like, it was just like tenor man is one, two, one, two, three, four. <laughs> without saying anything to anyone and then they just started playing it and when someone was like who is this guy like what who does he think he is kind of kind of vibe and uh they both like later on they both um auditioned for the coltrane ensemble yeah and um they both got in and uh wenzel wenzel uh didn't want to be an ensemble with him so he actually dropped out of culture ensemble <laughs> and then at a later date you know we're all like um playing in uh we're all actually living together in the same apartment building in brooklyn yeah and um uh me and wenzel were playing in the street a lot still okay. um, it was either me and wenzel or me and wenzel and uh trumpet player that's no longer with us paul brana hmm. Um, and, uh, one day it was me, Wenzel, uh, playing at the Washington Square Arch in Washington Square Park, um, which is like right next to the NYU library. So it's okay. like a, a super, like, there's like a lot of students and there's like, it's like, you can play it there and like cops aren't really going to mess with you like nine times out of 10. <laughs> so it was like a spot that you could go to play and like the acoustics were really good. So we were playing on one side of the arch, and uh, Mike and our friend Max Jaffe, amazing drummer, um, uh, were, were busking in a similar format. And so Mike was there with his tenor sax, Max was there with his drums. So we kind of like ran into each other. And so they started playing on the other side of the arch. And the way the acoustics are, it's like their sound, they're going over one side of the arch. And then <laughs> when the sound is going over and meeting in the middle and then being reflected down. So it was just like a bit, it was an interesting kind of like surround sound experience and yeah. collective musical improvisation. We're like, you know, 40 feet away from each other. And we got this, we got a crowd going. People started dancing. And um, so let me back up for a second because <laughs> it's all relevant. So Wenzel yeah. actually um, uh, took some time off of school, six months to go. Um, he had this gig on a cruise ship, mm, um, okay. not only playing saxophone in, in the band on the ship, but also um, 
well, I guess when he was there, he met a DJ. Yeah. And DJ sort of, they teamed up. He was playing saxophone. And then through that experience, mm. Wenzel learned how to navigate this program called Ableton. Okay. Which is oh boy. There we go. <laughs> but go on to, yeah. you know, use for the live set. So um, Wenzel came back from the cruise ship and was like, do you know how to play a house beat? And then he taught me the mechanics of, of uh, dance music, which at the time I was just not familiar with and yeah. not really interested in. But, um, you know, we started playing kind of like repetitive, um, like jazzy, like sample kind of feel music um, with him on sax and me on drums. And then, so Washington Square Park, we were doing that. And then like uh, Mike and uh, Max showed up. And so we all started playing in that idiom. And uh, with the harmony and the bass covered between the two uh, melodic instruments, it was like, it was like all of a sudden this music like took on hmm. a powerful enough dimension so that people yeah. started dancing. So like that was the first time where like me and Monster were playing and like people started dancing, you know, it was the addition of of um another saxophone yeah. and another drummer. Um when it came to like forming a band, it, it uh, at the time didn't seem like um it seemed like a little bit too uh like confusing of a texture for like yeah. uh, people dancing you know to have like two different rhythmic um points of reference you know so um uh so the you know we started playing the subway me uh mike wenzel and then uh on a few occasions when i wasn't available uh max would play with with mike wenzel down the subway okay um, and uh, i think there's a couple of videos of of those performances recorded on youtube so so that's how that's how moon Hooch formed gotcha so when so, so after that like uh, um like amazing like panoramic or uh, sonic combination of these two buskers that formed together to to bring everyone to dance um then at that point was once so like cool with mike he's like coltrane he was like Coltrane and then the band started you know, like because if it seems like there was a bit of a or a kind of a weird rift before they before that incident before that cool busking like magic um well uh I mean when it comes <laughs> to like interpersonal um, yeah. you know, connection and communication and emotions and egos and things like that like th there's you know definitely definitely some clashing and some some hurdles that sure you know, had had to be addressed and um definitely some you know complications like definitely some like heated rehearsals <laughs> that like that are not you know but was that was just, like, yeah you know like it's like with any other bands yeah you know? was that the thing that like bridged the gap though like the like in academia, it seemed like they were kind of avoiding each other. But that busking incident before before taking it to the subway was that kind of what, like, okay, that was cool. Let's do that again, type deal. Yeah, it was cool. like wow, that has never happened. Yeah. before like we should like explore this. Yeah, because like coming from the jazz world, like you know, you rarely see like a a performance where like people get up and actually start dancing. You know, right. Not it's not you know at least now it's not dance music you know yeah. like like swing music was like back in the day. It's almost like um, a 
intellectual dance music like when when, when the jazz crowd i imagine that you would go see like at the bop stop or at the or at uh, night town would be just like kind of you can see their thinking like they're grooving in their head they're trying to figure it out <laughs> it's like a, a different type of dance than to like actually see people move but i, I feel yeah. like that's as a performer yeah yeah that's For more sure. exciting it's more exciting to see the whole individual take over and like get into it uh-huh yeah that's the that's that's powerful man like um dance music is is um definitely something to be reckoned with <laughs> have you um have you uh, read the book uh your brain on music yeah oh, okay cool that's a great book yeah 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 um david levitin um oh. yeah i really enjoy his stuff he's also got the world in six songs i don't know if you've dove into that one yet that's like an evolutionary oh, no. chase uh, uh, trace I heard about that yeah but need to read that one yeah yeah his stuff's really good like i went i've read your brain on music uh, quite a few times um but there's this idea right like and i through well, i went to school for music therapy i like and like uh, so through learning that and like kind of researching on my own with that book and diving into NMT, it's interesting that like with like dance music or trance music, there's this repetitive thing, right? This groove or this or or this space, whatever. It's always the same type of thing, right? Like so, if you have one section of a groove, it repeats, it repeats. Maybe it's a vamp over one chord. So your brain, like which likes to like based on the Gestalt principle of expectancy, likes to know what's going to happen next right uh -huh. so that's why like when uh, when uh, there's like a deceptive cadence our brain's like Ooh. but if we know where if it goes like one to five or five to one we're like oh cool, cool. we expect that it, all those notes and you know from playing piano want to lead to that and that in our brain's like dopamine so like with a uh -huh. with a, a dance groove or a trance groove or like something that's already establishes okay it's just this over and over and over again it kind of allows the brain to hear what's being said on top right like so that's why I, uh, I don't know like maybe that's why james brown is heard so loudly because his grooves are repetitive or maybe the that's why people are able to latch on to you guys just grooving on one thing in the subway and are either able just to jump into it yeah Definitely. That's a deep thing. And uh, what's that author's name again? David Levinton, I think it's L E. Levinton. I'll send you, I'll yeah. send you the, the link for the, the other book. Um, awesome. Uh, no, yeah. So he, in that, in that book, this is your brain on music. He, um, um, uh, he said something about beauty that really resonated with me. It's, it's basically what you just said that um, like beauty is the manipulation of expectation. You know, like those yeah, yeah. cadences where like you expect things to happen and then they don't and it surprises you and sort of catches you off guard. It's like, it's like when you go through the whole day without thinking about a sunset and then all of a sudden there's like a beautiful sunset mm -hmm. that you didn't anticipate. And it's like, you know, it, I, I guess it's beautiful because like you didn't see it coming. And it's yeah. like, wow, like the way that clouds are the way that the sun is like all that and like um or what's uh i guess you know take a musical example it's like yeah. you know like latching onto that that rhythm it's like um this is a deep conversation so like <laughs> <laughs> so you know it like I mean, tra trance music is beautiful. You know, trance is like a mm -hmm. subgenre of like dance music. 
um, but it's like really slowly changing yeah. uh, motifs over time, you know? Um, I don't know where I'm going with this. I'm just talking. I love no, having this conversation. <laughs> um, like, it's those, those like little moments where like something changes is like what keeps you engaged. You yeah. know, like you said something about dopamine, like, you know, like that reward system of right. like, like that gratification of like hearing music that that sort of um like brings you along for the ride you know using these you know elements like repetition and um uh time you know people say like oh i don't have rhythm but like everyone's got you know everyone walks in rhythm talks in rhythm you know like they might not like think think that they have like you know quote unquote like musical rhythm or whatever but like if you like music, if you like, you know, if you, if you like are affected by something like dance music, then, you know, you have rhythm. Yeah. You well, know, it's interesting. Cause like the kind of two thoughts on that, like the idea of rhythm, everyone has, if you, if we take, if we zoom out of rhythm, it's like emotion, right? And our, our existence is essentially some form of motion without motion. You don't really exist. If you don't have like, electrical synapses going in your brain and making those connections having some type of movement there's there's quite literally nothing you know what i mean uh-huh. and like and if you would zoom in more on what that motion is you'd see it's either repetitive or there's some type of rhythm to it so it's 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 heady to say but rhythm is life but they kind of zoom back out to like trance music it's interesting because you 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 bring up the how it's slow changing right and when those changes happen it like you're like oh there's a change and in a weird way that's that's kind of like life right we go through so much of the same thing every day and then one thing changes now you're in new york or you know fill in the blank and then it's like whoa and then that gets to be repetitive and then the next thing happens um it's it's a really a i don't know it's crazy it's crazy like how you can make these weird comparisons into it but it Rhythm yeah. really has like a a profound human nature to it. Um, that, definitely, like I, like everyone experiences that. Everyone experiences yeah. like changes in their lives, you know, and like whether or not they like perceive it like intellectually as like a rhythm. Yeah, you know it. You know it. it it's a point. It is like like you know just living in this universe, like on this planet, we're just like in the rhythm of like night and day yeah yeah like like, we have no control over that like we're in the rhythm of like existence and non-existence or like you know like the seasons changing it's like these are like big rhythms that can't be avoided and affect us like yeah whether we're paying attention or not you know is that kind of the jump gears and we can come back to it but with evolution of life forms on earth is that kind of like where the idea stems from a little bit for your 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 piece you have coming out on uh valentine's um, day <laughs> uh yeah i mean uh well that piece deals with um like conceptualizing the the changes that have happened in in the fossil record yeah um using sound as the you know changes in sound you know manipulation of sound as as a way to sort of express express that in a sort of abstract way was in uh inspired well what inspired that what brought that um the idea because that's a that's a hefty concept for for a record like not too many people are taking on 
life <laughs> existence with with well I, I shouldn't say that but you know i mean it to track it like that what kind of brought up this inspiration to do it um well it's it's definitely a passion piece you know like yeah. i love music and i love prehistory and i love nature and i love animals and plants and uh you know like the universe and like uh this like existential awe you know what i mean yeah <laughs> like, yeah that's all that's always had a big you know like it has a big influence impact on you know almost everybody but like for me um uh and my background growing up like i spent a lot of time outside and like spent i i guess it's more like i spent a lot of time like learning about animals and like learning about the fossil record and actually uh the what ultimately inspired that idea was um i was in chicago um as a teenager and uh at the field museum there yeah where like sue the t-rex that that skeleton is they have this awesome uh evolution exhibit uh you basically go from room to room sort of um with like a bunch of stuff on the wall and imagery of like animals and plants and like uh artists uh reconstructions of like what the sky looks like what these animals look like what the terrain looks like and going through that exhibit i was just i was just overcome with this like just feeling of like awe and wonder and uh at the time was like really you know getting like super into music yeah at the time i didn't have um the idea to to make that to, I didn't conceive that piece at that time, but I think going through that exhibit sort of like was like the seed in mm. planting that inspiration. The osmosis thing back back again. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's an awesome exhibit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um it's interesting that I don't know, you as an individual and I'm sure plenty of other indiv- individuals are moved by by earth, you know, by life. But there's been a particular time where the Earth was moved with by you, in a way. Like um, that, that that there was a, and this is totally jumping ship. But like microburst, some apparently that happened to you as a kid. What's uh, what's microburst? It's like a sound that um, it's like a where the ground lets up. Uh, you mean like literally? Yeah, yeah. The ground, like it does, almost like a sinkhole, where it's like, Phew. oh, the ground opened. I, I mean, <laughs> that never happened to me. I think. Why I, did I? Say I that no, to no, me? I found this article, man. It was um, uh, apparently in April of 1996. Uh, the phenomenon of a microburst, and it apparently happened by wherever your dad was living, where elevation land rises, and like, um, it just shifted some sidewalk and knocked down some tree and there's a picture of you and your siblings hanging out by it i was trying to tie it in <laughs> oh it's interesting yeah to be honest i, I don't totally remember forget that yeah <laughs> oh, man. If, if there's if there's photo evidence then it happens <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. um uh, but shifting gear i was trying to tie that in <laughs> an aha moment yeah just kind of like wow the ground moves like things change right yeah oh, yeah but- i remember it being really like the first time i heard about plate tectonics that like totally blew my mind away and like 
looking at the world map and, you know, like South America and Africa at one time being, you know, together and like the way that the, the, um, you know, the middle of the ocean looks with like that big, um, you know, like where the new rocks are created. Yeah. Like that just totally blew my mind away. And like the concept of cosmic time scales, you know, like that's another thing that inspired the evolution piece is like, we can't perceive any period of time longer than, you know, the time that each of us has been alive. Yeah. Respectively, you know, we, we like know what a second feels like in a minute and an hour and a day and like, you know, up to like a lifetime. But beyond that, it's, it's hard to have like a frame of reference, you know, right. Same thing with like distance. It's like, we can't really conceive of the distance between here and the moon right. or like between here and Saturn or here in the next star or galaxy. And so it, it's interesting because, yeah, I'm sorry. I was going to say so much of your perception kind of go back to the brain thing. Our brain only in, it takes in so many different sensory inputs and recognizes things. And like music to us is beauty, all this aesthetic beauty that we see in music and art and everything can mean nothing to a cat or nothing to a, a snail or something that has like a different membrane has a different way of perceiving life and like distance and stuff like that. It's crazy to us. Like it's infathomable a trip from here to Saturn, which takes a, I don't know, you know what I mean? Uh, uh-huh. A couple light years that lights measured by year that like the word itself makes sense. But when you start to take it apart, you're like, wait, what, how, you know, that, that, that doesn't make sense. Like we're miles per hour. Okay. We can follow that light ear, like, light years. Like <laughs> it's, 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 it's inspiring and like confusing, <laughs> but I think it's that confusion. That is that inspiration that like, we don't know everything and there's always stuff to learn and there's it's ever expanding. Um, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. But I just wanted to. No, no, <laughs> no. I'm glad you did. You said something about, um, you know, like a cat, like a cat's universe is like, um, like the house. Right. And like, as, as humans, like we're, we're no except like all these organisms on the planet, like they have their own world that they're aware of. Yeah. And like, you know, we're, we're, we're not different. And, uh, the, there's this like that concept of like um, I'm really into this. Off- I don't know if you know Michu Kaku, mm, theoretical no. physicist. No, um, he's like a popularizer of science and, and okay. theoretical physics. He's got a bunch of great books. Um, uh, I think Hyperspace is his most well-known one. He's also got this book called uh, Parallel Worlds, which is about uh, multiverse theory. Okay, and uh, he begins the book by uh, talking about this. Um, like like being a fish in a pond and like you live your whole life in the pond and like there's a whole world right above the surface of the water mm. you know but like yeah. and uh you know now we're talking about theoretical theoretical physics uh you know that book is about like the the 10 dimensions or 11 dimensional theory where like we're in this reality but hovering right above it or like in it in some way um, which is like totally twisting the imagination is like yeah. this whole other world, you know, like thinking about like four dimensional space and like, you know, like cubist artists attempt to recreate that in three or sometimes two dimensions, you know, but like, um, you know, the way we evolved on this planet is like, 
um, is purely just for the survival and proliferation of our genes. You know, it's, it's not advantageous to see things in the fourth or fifth dimension. It's like, in fact, that would, that would make it harder to survive an attack from, you know, some, you know, ancient predator. Right. <laughs> you know, already... it, it would be distracting and you would die. <laughs> yeah. <you know? laughs> who's already ready to rock and roll in the dimension he's conquered and like, or they conquer, whatever. Um, that's, that's interesting. Um, I, I feel like I've read bits of his, I read a lot of like intro books that like take a bunch of random uh, snippets from everybody and put it together. And I read one on, um, Stephen Hawking and like, I think there was a little excerpt about, about the multi-dimension thing. Um, in the, the analogy of the fish, is like a super good analogy for that, right? Because right beyond, like how you're saying, right above that, that, that where the water ends and the land begins is another form of life. That's a really uh, cool. That's really yeah, cool. Fish lives in the water. Like we live like earth in, is our pond, you know, three dimensions of space and one dimension of time. Right. Like, you know, same with the fish, you know, but like, I think the analogy is cool. Cause it's like, it's it's like you know it's right above the surface it's like yeah. the fish lives in this like huge world that it can't um can't conceive of um but it's like it's like literally right above the surface right you know it's like it's you know at our fingertips or like at the quantum level or just like something that our eyes and brains can't perceive or whatever it is that's a crazy conversation man <laughs> This is the exact conversation I wanted to have with you, James. Like, I wanted to, I wanted to make, and it started off the right way. We started off with Coltrane, oh, and wow. here we are. Oh, wow. But okay, the kind of like uh, the kind of shifted back into uh, perspective. How like with the ensemble of of the evolution of forms of life, or the evolution of life um, forms on ah oh, fuck, the evolution of life forms on Earth. I said it only took me three times. Um. With instrumentalized, like tonally, how do you choose to represent that? What what inspired you to pick the instruments you have used for for uh, uh, um for the for the piece? Because like I remember walking in, seeing you and Isaiah have all this stuff set up, and uh, seeing a little bit of um, some of the gongs that were used. Like what brought um how do you find the sounds to represent it? Mm. That's a good question. Well, I I guess uh, to answer that, I think maybe to put it in context, I'll talk about the original version of the piece, okay. which is actually meant to be improvised between musicians. Yeah. And because that experience led me to to think of what instruments would be best for what I was, you know, thinking in my mind for what, what I wanted it to sound like. So uh, the piece originally was meant to be played among any number of improvising musicians or a solo performer. Right. Um, basically the idea is that you, um, you know, when it comes to like having it be related to the fossil record, that it was important for there to be stopwatches with time cues to signify major events in the fossil record, notably things like mass extinctions. Um, the idea being that um, when a mass extinction... Okay, well, so uh, as a musician, you're basically recreating sounds in, in your environment as they're happening. 
Mm-hmm. And like, you can imagine just like being in a silent room. And I think part of this inspiration originally came from people like John Cage, um, you know, with his silence piece for yeah. four minutes, 33 seconds. And then also Stockhausen, who uh, sort of exposed me to the idea of like, um, when you hear a sound, it's like things, things will never be the same. It's like that sound. Yeah. But much like quantum universe and like, you know, like things that, that we're doing every moment that affect the quantum realm and the butterfly effects and stuff like that. So like, um, if you, if you're in a room and it's just silent, it's actually, there's no silence. There's actually all these sounds happening already. Yeah. Like if I stop talking, if I stop talking, like I noticed that like, I'm in the room with my drum set right now. Like every time I say something, the symbol, I haven't been paying attention to it until now, but <laughs> every time I say something, the symbol is actually making sounds like right. up the vibrations and, and amplifying those through the symbol. And like outside it's snowing a little bit and like, I can hear the falling snow a little bit, like on the roof. So, um, starting playing this piece from an improvised standpoint, basically, trying to recreate those sounds in any way you can Hmm. um as an instrumentalist you probably have the most control over trying to do that with your you know respective uh respective instrument um but basically so um improvising with that concept and recreating sounds as they're happening means that sounds have a lineage that can be traced back in time to an ancestral sound you know like the seed okay Okay. And um, so uh, with uh, musicians in the same room uh, with stopwatches, they're all uh, basically recreating sounds. Like uh, to, to, let's, let's say there's a, an upright bass player and a piano player, like and a sax player, like there was a, a, the first time I tried to play this piece. Um, starting with silence and then... Uh, I think Nick Joswiak was the first one bass player um, mm-hmm. to start making sound. Um, or maybe, I don't know, I forget. I think maybe it was William Parker. There were, there were actually two bass players in that room the first time I tried to play this piece. <laughs> and um, it started off with like a little bit of like percussive thing on the yeah. bass itself. And then the other instrumentalists slowly like patiently joined, you know, following the, following the instructions. And uh, I chose musicians that I thought would be like um, into like this like idea of patience and uh, exploring sound in this way. And I was really happy with the result. And um, it didn't go exactly as I had planned because, uh, you know, like the, it's hard to like put yourself in that improvised um, like in the moment sort of state of mind yeah. while following something like uh a stopwatch waiting for cues. So, you know, when I listen back to the recording, it's like, okay, there, there are definitely some, like, this is not accurate or not consistent with the fossil record, but it's a cool idea. Yeah. Um, I think if we had rehearsed it a little bit more, it would be, um, maybe a little bit more, uh, representative. Gotcha. Um, but so basically that's the idea. And then after, okay. um, it's, it's a simu- it's relating it to, four billion years and 40 minutes hmm. i just chose that time frame because i thought that um made the math easier <laughs> yeah 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 especially when you're trying to in that case when you're working with people and trying to, to market as you're doing it you know what i mean like 
it'd have to be kind of clear cut as opposed to being like, oh, nope, we got to go to three minutes and 30, tw- or 27 seconds. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like trying uh-huh. to, to market like that would be a lot more difficult, especially uh-huh. being in the moment and trying to recreate that. And, and so and once a it gets conductor to... conductor might actually solve that. Having a conductor oh, for go. the improvised version would, be, would probably be a good idea. Hmm. What was it? Uh, sorry, I'm going off on a tangent. So, no, no, so it's good. Answer, like... Okay, good. Um, so the instrumentation that I chose for the um, for the through composed version that I'm about to release, yeah, um, I thought that um, gong made a lot of sense uh, because um, there's a lot of sounds that you can get out of a gong, right. and it, you know it's basically just a big, huge vibrating piece of metal, and um, when you when you make a sound on a gong. Uh, whether you do it with a with a bow or with a, a, like using friction with uh, different sized uh, rubber balls with a oh cool um, stick, yeah. it looks like a lollipop yeah yeah um, or if you just do it with you know just striking the gong softly with a you know, with a big mallet. heavy soft mallet yeah so you know after forty minutes go by and let's say you hit that gong forty times you know once a minute that that end result sound is going to be it's going to have qualities that that it has because of the specific overtones that are resonating through through the metal. Yeah. Um, and you know, obviously, that happens with something like a piano string, or uh, you know, at a much much uh, almost entirely not noticeable level with like wind instruments, like a saxophone or a flute or a trumpet. But with a gong, it's like it's. Um, you know, being a giant vibrating piece of metal that vibrates for a long time. Yeah. Um, these, it has that quality of having these overtones that stick out. And um, like when you, when you hit a gong for the first time after it's just sitting in a quiet room, it's going to have like kind of like a bass overtone kind of feel. It went from not resonating at all, more or less, to resonating a little bit. Okay. And okay. It's you know a minute later, it's still resonating. But if you hit it again, you know, in, even in the same location, it's gonna sort of have that uh, resonance and those those overtone oh, overtones already okay. happening. Yeah, yeah. So you're it, you're changing the wave that way. Yeah, totally. Okay. So um, using uh, uh, this this piece was recorded in layers, so. Yeah. So the gong is sort of like the centerpiece, and uh, there's um, uh, with a gong using friction mallets, uh, those rubber balls, and then also with the bowing technique, you can actually create long tones with a gong, which is cool. So um, <laughs> creating that feeling that like things are just constantly changing, constantly in motion, and like every little. Um, it's it's such a sensitive instrument like um every like the tension in your wrist when you're bowing it and like the way your arm is and like how you know if you're just letting the weight of the bow just sort of go along the edge and not putting any pressure on or if you add the tiniest amount of pressure it it changes the quality of the sound and the overtones like quite a lot and um actually at the new school um for my senior recital i wrote this piece for gong i spent a lot of time with the gong and that's when i realized like wow this is like a really really sensitive instrument 
and uh, also listening to that um, that piece by Stockhausen. It's called uh, Microphone, mm-hmm. and it's a piece where he puts a contact mic on uh, actually the same size gong that I used for this piece, 38-inch gong. I think maybe he used a 40-inch gong. Um, but he put a contact mic on it, and then the vibrations that went through the contact mic were uh, basically um, sort of amplified all those subtleties, hmm. you know, yeah. like made them more audible to the human ear. That's, I didn't realize, like, I know gongs like a... It, it you know a lot of people who play it or who or who very or who are very moved by it are really into it, but now, hearing you explain the subtlety of like once you strike it again, it, the tone's different because it's already resonating. Like I, I didn't put that together. That makes so much more sense to me now. Uh-huh. And, and the, and cool. the bigger really the gong, cool. the the more the more um, obvious those little differences are. Yeah, like with, with a tiny you know with like a little five inch. Um, it's um it more or less sounds like the same sound yeah it's it's you know unless unless you like spend some time with it and you know really just like try to (laughs) you know just like geek out on it well you can find those different but like you know obviously with the big gong there's there's more vibrations happening there's more uh you know there's more more sonic spectrum there's there's a possibility for like sub bass lows that like the human ear can't even hear yeah and that's actually been an issue with mixing this piece is that <laughs> there's so many um competing low frequencies, frequencies yeah that i've had to mix it in a way so that it doesn't distort the speaker now are you doing all the mixing um i'm doing uh most of the of the mixing okay. yeah and then um uh isaiah jackson mm-hmm has been such a huge help he's um he he um engineered the session we we recorded the piece for about two weeks in a positive vibes music studio at yep. negative space and um then after we after we recorded it i was kind of like i kind of put it down because i wanted to take my time with it and yeah. uh like my ears were kind of exhausted from like hearing the same thing every <laughs> yeah. every day for two weeks um, and then it wasn't until a couple months ago that I decided to pick it, pick it back up and finish it. And, um, so basically I took, took what we did and, um, and first of all, found my favorite samples that I thought were, um, the cleanest and the best rendition of the sound I was going for. Yeah. And then try to find a way to arrange them in a way so that, um, complexity and also volume and uh, uh, density of sound mm-hmm. uh, simulated biodiversity, basically. Gotcha. And then low volume, um, fewer harmonic frequencies, less of a sonic spectrum, and overall less dense sound signified um, a mass extinction event. And uh, for the majority of the piece, you know, with like, 3.2 billion years being just single-celled bacteria yeah and not having this evolutionary um pressure of like you know, predator versus prey and like the dynamics of having these animals with brains and eyes interacting with each other competing for you know basically you know time and space in the environment that evolutionary rates were you know went 
very unchanged. You know, like yeah. when a cell divides, it's like that other cell carries basically the same DNA. You know, when you're dealing with an animal, it's like there's so many cells with all these different specialized functions. Yeah, it's much and more complicated. So much more complicated. Yeah. yeah. So, like, because of animals and and also animals uh, diversifying, just like sets off evolution and biodiversity like exponentially. Mm. So in the piece, it's like pretty slow and unchanging, but like very meditative and beautiful for like the first three, first three point two, and then you know the last you know the five mass extinctions are in the last six minutes of the piece, starting with um, the Avalonian, then the Cambrian, yeah. and then Ordovician, uh, Permian, Triassic, uh, Cretaceous, and then uh, or I'm sorry. Uh, 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 Jurassic, and then finally the Cretaceous, which was the yeah. asteroid impact. So that happens um, 45, uh, 45 seconds before the end of the piece being. That's or no, 66 million years ago. So that would be um, 40, uh, uh, whatever. I did the math. <laughs> it's like somewhere around 40 seconds before the end of the piece. And then the yeah. piece sort of cuts off with silence abruptly. And go back because it just ends. You know, I wanted it to. You know, it's supposed to be. So it's supposed to illustrate um, fossil record like as accurately as I could, as I could try while like still trying to make it like musical, but like basically make it relevant. You know, yeah. So it just it just cuts off. There's no like m- like musical quote unquote ending where like things sort of resolve and like ends. It just it just ends abruptly. Yeah. Well, either it starts again, you know, if you're, if you're looping <laughs> yeah. it, or or that makes sense because here we are. It's almost kind of like a, right. a, a going to the, the concept of, of um, hearing what's around you after listening to that for so long, the silence, and then there's now. Um, damn, that's going to be so cool. I'm super stoked to hear that. Dude, me too. <laughs> the amount of, like, just conceptual organizing to put it in perspective you know what I mean? That, that's that's such a Coltrane like thing, man. Like that's 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 so that's cool. It's like music beyond like the use of just like the pop song or the song cycle thing. It's it, I don't know. That's awesome. I'm really and <laughs> I'm really stoked to hear that, dude. Oh, thanks, uh, man. It's definitely definitely an art piece. You know? Yeah, yeah, but yeah. It, it has a really meditative quality, which is nice because it, um, you know, as it relates to the listener, I want it mm-hmm. to be. A pleasant experience yeah you know <laughs> i didn't want to start off with a sound that's like uh like like scre- like screeching and then like it starts from there like it starts with you know just one very simple very soft gong hit with a big yeah. soft mallet you know it's just like or uh, actually no it starts it starts off with the with the rubber balls the mallet comes later but it's okay. it's it's very slow changing and but it's yeah. very meditative uh, to me, it's really beautiful. So, well, but that—that's—that's that's how it expanded. It was slow, and you know, uh-huh. evolution is not a quick thing. <laughs> that's oh, that's going to be really rad, man. Um, Dude, I'm stoked for you to hear it. Yeah, I'm stoked to hear it. It's it's cool that like it was cool kind of sneaking in a little bit and seeing some of the process because like uh, when you were recording with Isaiah when he when his studio was at Negative Space, now it's not a not um I think it's at his own place now. Because uh-huh. uh, that room is rented out to some artists, um, uh-huh. but it was cool to kind of just see, like, in the capture, 
because like how you were explaining how the gong has all these different frequencies and like just to be able to record it, you know, I mean, how do you capture an instrument that f- that fills so much of the space? Like, what did you guys do mic wise? Do you remember? Like, I would yeah, be interested no, in know how question. you captured that tone. So um, there were a couple of room mics. Um, you know, we wanted as much control over the sound of, of each instrument as possible. And, you know, we're just talking about the gong now, but there's actually a bunch of percussion. There's Tibetan singing bowls. Yeah. uh, And there's used in various ways. And then also, um, finger cymbals and, uh, a wide variety of suspended cymbals. Okay. Uh, Some of my favorite ride cymbals and, uh, you know, played the sticks and mallets. And so, so it's not just the gong. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, when I got carried away with that. <laughs> yeah, well, the gong, the gong is the centerpiece for yeah. sure. Um, but, you know, this piece would not be what it is without without that gong. Um, so it, uh, there are a couple close mics uh, from the front and from the back, um, and then also a couple of room mics. So the close mics were interesting because you know when you hit the gong, being a suspended big heavy piece of metal, it does you know move back and forth a little bit. Yeah, you know so. That uh, that that Doppler effect kind of yeah. like was wasn't something I was thinking about, but actually adds to this idea of like a living, breathing organism, hmm. like swinging back and forth, and, you know, like a little closer to the mic and back. Yeah, it like it creates this like that feeling of of motion, you know, that's like just happening without the performer having to do anything. I bet that'd be really yeah. cool in stereo too, like yeah but um okay so okay so it led to some challenges because of it but also it seems like those became its own own way to express the piece yeah well actually the the doppler effect was not a challenge that was just sort of like a nice surprise yeah yeah that's cool um kind of shift gears a little bit um i remember hanging out with you while you were recording that a little bit because i was getting a we did that stomp video where you played tablas on it, and I was trying to get the mix from Isaiah. One, one of the one of the times I chanced upon uh, you guys tracking those two weeks, um, and you told me this is a complete sh- gear shift. But, <laughs> but uh, not that I want to leave the subject. I want to come back to it. Um, you told me the story about going to Australia with Moon Hooch that I oh. thought was like a solid story, and how they wouldn't call you Moon Hooch. Like uh, for some TV show. Oh yeah, uh huh. Yeah, Hamish, Hamish and Andy. Yeah, yeah. So, you, so to kind of get caught up with our narrative before uh, before talking about your piece, um, when did the subway plane in the subway lead to going to Australia? Dude, I'm down to talk about anything. I'm I'm really grateful that uh that we're having this conversation. This, likewise. this is super fun. Yeah, likewise, and <laughs> and thanks for having me. Yeah, no, thanks um, for doing this. This is um. I just remember that story was so cool. The Australian, it was so, it was so kind of funny how that, how they, I just, I don't know. I want to make sure we shared that one, but like, um, so you guys are playing together, developing your, developing moon hooch in, in the subways of New York. When does like that start to take notice? And I know like Mike Daltrey of soul coffee and apparently took notice. And like, when does that lead to Australia? So there's a couple points in that. <laughs> like, uh-huh. Uh, let's see. I think 
I think Mike Doty came a little bit later. Okay. If I'm remembering correctly. I think I think the Austria I could be wrong. It's um you know, that was like maybe ten years ago. So it's yeah, hard to it's a, it's a, and all that kinda happened like within the same time period. Yeah. Um but uh we were um we were playing in the subway like a lot, like usually like five days a week and like up to like eight to 10 hours a day. So like it became your new um, shed, like instead it of became sh- our shed. Yeah, yeah. We were like in the shed, just like all, it was like, we were all about it. Just like constant. It was awesome. Um, man, that was a really special time. Um, so like thousands of people would, would see us cause yeah. you know, thousand people come down you know, 1% of them, 2% of them maybe wait and like check out the music for a bit. And then, you know, vast majority of them get, get on the train, go to where they're going. Um, so like one of those thousands of people were, um, or two of them were Hamish and Andy, you know, the, the comedy duo from mm-hmm. Australia. Um, and they were filming the show called Hamish and Andy's Gap Year. And in Australia, they had something called a Gap Year, which is basically... Uh, a year that you take off after high school before you go to college okay. where you sort of just like have a period of self-discovery and exploration. Sounds healthy. Um, <laughs> so for their gap year, yeah, just, there's, I, I, I love the Australian vibe. It's awesome. So they, um, they, so for their gap year, for their TV show, it was it's so funny. They had this idea they were going to go to the United States to like sort of like get to know the United States. Yeah. Um, uh, and oh my God, it's so funny. So they, so they had this big production. This, uh, they rented out the space in Greenpoint. It's a like big warehouse. And every week they had like a different... Um, different things going on but anyway so it was 11 episodes and um they were looking for so for for the first um uh first episode they talk about what what it's like like the first things they do to when they get to new york and they say they're looking for a band for their show and they wanted to get buskers from the subway to come and play on the show you know they're working with the budget yeah um and they, they i mean they you know that was like our that was like you know they were so nice to us and like such great oh man they're awesome um but they uh so in the first episode they're like yeah we like auditioned all these buskers and they like showed some footage of like some other buskers and like it was so funny the, the footage that they showed and then they're like but we like we found this band and uh we were underneath uh on the first episode, we were, um, it was me and Michael Wentzel, we were underneath a sheet. And on the first episode, they're like, you know, like, drum roll, please. And they, like, lift it off the sheet, and we start <laughs> playing a little bit. And they're like, um, make a big deal about, like, not just one, you only get one saxophone, we got two saxophones. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so we were the, um, uh, for the show, we wanted to be Moon Hooch. Yeah. Right. Um, because we're, you know, trying to establish our brand yeah. and our name, um, you know, just to avoid confusion, you know, so we actually, so they, they, they thought it was funny to call us the Busketeers and that was part of the deal. <laughs> um, and so we actually started a new Facebook group called the Busketeers with like links to our, you know, like new huge page. Um, so that's how that all started. And so every, every week they filmed and every week we went and like hung out with them and did the whole production and like, 
it was awesome, man. There was like a big party after every show, and <laughs> like we all like went up to the roof and it, it just like hung out. It was awesome. That's awesome. And then it's the so- way we got to Australia was um, uh, the next year they were throwing this show. They were back in Australia. Yeah. After their uh, break year. What's that? After their year of self-discovery, then they're back in Australia. Right. And uh, so they, they, um, in Australia, they had this thing called Big Night Out. Okay. And while that was going on, they had an event called Small Night In. (laughs) (laughs) And they, they flew us out for that. They, um, it was just one performance. Yeah. And we, we played in this, we played for this party. Um, but they flew us out and put us up in this hotel for like awesome hotel for like 11 days. Nice. And for us, that was like our like total rock star moment. Yeah. That was just, like, we were just like walking around in robes and like going to the sauna and like going to the <laughs> beach and like, you know, just like having, having a great time. That was in Melbourne. That sounds awesome. We played the little night in. It's kind of like the big night. That's so <laughs> sick though. And like just the, the, they wouldn't call you moon hooch to call you the musketeers. Like, it's frustrating that's such like a spinal tap like thing you know what i mean like oh my god (laughs) but that's it's amazing like so from growing from but that under this cement like this concrete like garden you blossomed all these really cool opportunities and like um what i was uh, what i want to say about that but it's cool like so all these things came from coming from this thing you wouldn't think this everyone walks by it gets on a, a sub it gets on a sub giant sandwich drives home and just to be in that that kind of ethos of people's lives and seeing crossing so many paths is it's amazing what it leads to and like what uh you guys did like later on when moon hooch started like touring leaving the subway um, you guys did a bunch of other busking and en- endeavors, right? Like there's a, I saw there was a video of you guys playing the cows. There's a video of you guys playing on a, which is personally one of my favorites when you guys are on this highway that's like traffic jam and you walking up and down the street. Like, do you have a, a, a favorite busking, uh, uh, environment other than the subway that you guys have, uh, <laughs> taken uh-huh. over? think for a second <laughs> there's a lot there's a lot and it's so there's a lot yeah it's so uh-huh. cool because it's such a pure thing uh-huh well on that first tour we actually um that was the tour where um uh mike do mike doty saw us in the subway and gotcha first email said you want to join me join me on my national tour and we were like what so on that first tour um we uh we met this uh filmmaker yeah uh, from spain and he came on the road with us and uh basically he documented the whole tour and like edited videos every day yeah so because of him we have those videos you know like um because they were so well done freak out on the highway and like uh i think the the cow video was um that was just like a tripod we set up with it that was a different tour yeah um but on that first tour yeah we like would like get off the side of the road and uh, Eduardo would uh, would film us, and then you know it would be in in route to like another uh, another yeah. show. So like if we had like an hour to kill, like you know, like um, we usually had sound check like later on, or yeah, every day we had sound check later on. Yeah, and, like, so we were following a, a bus tour where the bus driver 
was taking the whole band from city to city throughout the night and would sleep during the day. And, it, you know, at the time, it was just me and Mike driving because Wenzel and Eduardo didn't drive. Hmm. So we were, like, getting, like, uh, you know, ne- next to no sleep and yeah. just, like, shifts driving, like, eight-hour drives. And um, But somehow we found the energy on some days to, like, um, be like, all right, like, it's a nine-hour drive, but, like, or it's, like, an eight-hour drive, but, like, we got nine hours to get there. Like, let's use this hour and, like, shoot a quick video. So we, yeah. like pull over and be like oh this is a perfect spot for video like lighting's great like this is a great um um good vibe good like uh uh good imagery whatever you know and like some some of that was like eduardo's inspiration you know yeah. be like oh come on guys like this is perfect let's do it <laughs> so so that was awesome having that energy on the road with us um my favorite one that we did from from that time Man, honestly, that uh, that that abandoned highway where yeah, I, that's pretty like, sick. That was that was really sick. Like that that was like some awesome like visuals, yeah. you know? Because like and like what Eduardo did with the yellow line, yeah, you know, and like the rest of it's like black and white. I thought that was so cool. That was um, I didn't. That's so cool that you had a filmmaker with you because that uh, part of I wondered production wise like who's who's tracking this because it sounds and looks really good you know what i mean you can't just like be driving with just the band and being like all right let's do a quick video in like a traffic jam so that makes sense that that there was someone else there doing that and had that like extra like jolt of creativity to like uh be like wake up guys <laughs> yeah that was that was that was an awesome energy to have on the road and uh you know he like we could afford it at the time and like it was exactly what he wanted to do at that juncture in his life yeah he had like it was like um you know he's from spain i think it was his first time in america and it was just like an awesome opportunity for like all of us it was like really special that's cool well how was working with mike as far as mike uh mike uh touring with mike like Um, you guys were opening yeah oh yeah um so um uh Mike um, is such an awesome and like sincere and creative and just like all around just amazing person. Um, he would like um, actually uh, the management that Moonhooch got hooked up with um, for I think about six years. Yeah, our first, our first like actually our second management, but like the first manage- management we actually signed a contract with um was this uh this um management called hornblow records okay. or hornblow which is funny because like yeah. they don't have any other horn they haven't managed <laughs> any other horn bands <laughs> but uh so hornblow managed mike Doty, and um mike Doty basically like discovered us in the subway and gave yeah. us the opportunity to have this national tour so that alone just like that was just so nice for him so cool so sad um yeah, so sick. And uh, <laughs> so we kind of got under Hornblow's radar. And then like a few months after that tour, they had a meeting with us. They're just sort of like, you know, feeling us out. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like uh, uh, Jamie Kitman, the, the manager from uh, Manager of Hornblow Group, he used to manage this, this band called uh, The Meat Puppets. Yeah, and he was sick. basically like checking us out, make, making sure we weren't like another meat puppets like 
addicted to like heroin like what like crazy like rock stars like <laughs> so you we mean you guys that, didn't know, you know kurt we cobain <laughs> yeah like he yeah so he you know he just feeling us out and yeah. like seeing what direction we were going in and uh so we had a meeting with them and uh and then after that meeting we had this dilemma because we were about to um sign with a manager that uh sort of like you know, it was the first person to sort of like, uh, like, like really want to help us out, like yeah. in really anyone way. And it was kind of an emotional, emotional thing. You know, it's one of those, one yeah. of those dilemmas, but we ended up going with Hornblow. And, uh, um, so anyway, that's just a story, but <laughs> cool. you, said, you, you asked about Mike Doty. So Mike, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah <laughs> it, was, it was awesome touring with him. We met, um, this is crazy, dude. And so the so the bass player on that tour, yeah, um, it's so funny. So uh, me and my girlfriend at the time, we were in Brooklyn like uh, two years after that tour, and we needed a cab ride because like the subways were gonna like take forever, and I I think it was just like like uh, we we needed to get somewhere like in like a couple of hours, like late at night. Yeah, and we hailed a cab. And the cab driver was Mike Doty's bass player. What the fuck? <laughs> right? Yeah. In New York City. Damn. Like halfway through the cab ride, yeah. I, I like, I was like, wait. <laughs> I was like, dude. And then he like turns around. And he's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, that's his name, awesome. His name's Scrap. I was like, yeah. wait, Scrap? <laughs> that's Scrap a good bass like, player what? name. Scrap. <laughs> that's his nickname. Uh, well, it's a good one. Yeah, that's just way he went by, man. I, yeah. I, I think. Um, I think. I don't know. I, I saw like the. I actually, um, you know, like in the cabs, they have like the ID like on the back window, so you can like know the name of the driver. Yeah. So I recognized the name. I was like, no. And I look at him like same glasses. Like this. This is scrap, dude. <laughs> this is crap dude <laughs> like how many how many cab drivers are in new york city right and like like i was always taking like i never took cab back then too or like ever and like just that was that was bizarre man that was that was crazy I'm, and then the the drummer pete was really cool too um such a great drummer I forget his last name um but yeah that was a trio that was mike doty at the time uh with um scrap and then pete yeah. on drums yeah yeah, he's a he's one of those like singer songwriters that hasn't stopped, and he just keeps making stuff. And he's a road dog; he tours and tours and tours. Like uh-huh. he's a, he's the real deal. And like, so I don't know if you've seen any recent clips of him. Like he's got that cool like almost Cubist acoustic like nylon guitar. Like it's all square. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I follow him. I follow him on Instagram. Yeah, yeah, he's awesome. And like in his soul coffee, what a great band that was. You know, what I mean, like what a that's that the it's crazy. Like and I think it speaks to to his merit that he was like able to see you guys and be like this is fucking rad. This the world needs to know about this and like take you guys on. Cuz that, that's like the story you, you hear and like dream of and like you know what I mean, like uh, someone cool picking you up and taking you on the road, but that Dude, never happens was, you know what i mean so that's so surreal and so rad it was like a dream to- totally surreal like no yeah, dude everything that's happened so far yeah. in like my life like with music like definitely couldn't have seen seen it coming right like I, in high school like knowing that like i was like all the, i was gonna like do all these things like man 
It's been <laughs> such a trip. <laughs> and it's it's so beautiful because you can't, you know what I mean? Because you, you get into it for kind of what that question was. Am I doing this for myself or for something else? And like, you don't know. And then stuff just expands and then opportunity becomes available to do one or the other. And like, it's it's amazing. Like, if you just keep doing something, what may come? You know what I mean? Like, and it's almost following that blind faith of that thing you found that resonates with you. In your case, it was music and it was playing. Someone else's case, it might be pottery. It might be whatever. But having that thing that you can kind of not maybe like completely identify yourself with, but gives you some sort of purpose can lead to that, can lead to this, can lead to what's going to happen next. You know what I mean? It's in, there's no way to know it. It's just kind of like this blind faith of following it and like doing this thing you enjoy. <laughs> That's mm -hmm. so badass. Totally. I mean, you know, following the heart and then also you know, I was exposed to opportunity too, you know, like yeah. having the opportunity to go to the new school in a place like New York City. Right. Like everything that happened after that, could, like I can't really see that happening like anywhere else in the way that it did. Right. Maybe like Paris or Tokyo. Was it what? <laughs> but like, you, you know, you went to it, like, Paris and Tokyo? No, I'm saying like, oh, like maybe, I see. Maybe, okay. Like maybe in Paris. Like gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Like in a big city like that. Yeah. But you did, um, you did spend some time in India. Uh huh. What was it like? Was it studying Tabla or like how'd that come about? Um, so I went to India, uh, on, uh, four times. The first time I went was Tabla intensive. Yeah. Um, so we talked about Dan Weiss. Dan Weiss. Dan Weiss's Guruji is um, Samir Chatterjee. Yeah. And I've been with Samir for about um, about eleven years now. Okay. And now is and he? Actually, a... I haven't seen him in a couple of years because actually because uh, of the yeah uh, before the pandemic he was actually only planning on spending six months in India. He's been there for a year and six months. Hmm. So. So I haven't seen him recently, but we, we stay in contact. Um, but yeah, that first time I went to India, I went um, um, every winter uh, at the time, that time in his life, he was going to India uh, to, you know, be part of the community that, that he was from originally, which is in Calcutta. And um, so I went and stayed at this uh, youth hostel across the street from his, um, from his uh, apartment. And uh, basically went there with the intention of just, um, and I was inspired to do that through a couple people, you know, like D Dan Weiss went and did that intensive yeah. tabla thing there a couple of times. So um, I was like, I really just want to learn tabla and like get to know this. And like, I just, you know, I like, just like wanted like, so, you know, soak up as much as I could. I was right. like, see what India's all about. And I ended up falling in love with India. So I went there, and uh, yeah, the first time I would um, wake up, practice a little bit, go have a lesson with Samir. He would give me some stuff to work on. I would go practice, um, and then uh, that was it. It was just like super <laughs> intense. Yeah, and uh, you know, went went a few times to like uh, uh, like the market in the middle of Calcutta, and got to see some of Calcutta and. That was amazing. I mean, that was like, and I had like culture shock that first time right. I went. It, it was like so new and just so, like I've never seen, seen so many things about that culture and just like was, was like, 
like mystical and also like painful and disturbing. Right. Um, and amidst like all like the, you know, the things that were shocking in a negative way, like there's, I was really um, inspired by like the, this like harmony that exists in like the mentality that, that, you know, most people have there, which is, you know, kind of, you know, stemmed from Hinduism and, uh, and Islam, yeah. you know, like the, you know, religious traditions and, and, uh, just a whole, just a whole bunch of like, uh, you know, philosophical, like aha moments and like things that just like stirred, like stirred me up a little bit, you know? Hmm. And second time that I went, I went, um, uh, with, um, my girlfriend at the time yeah, and, uh, did a little bit of tabla, but that was just more to, to experience India. Gotcha. And that was more of the culture. What's that? That was more of the culture being able to take it in because the other one was like shedding. The first trip was shedding on tabla and learning and immersing yourself. And in, in the reason you initially went to go there to be in that culture musically. And then now it's like kind of to experience it. Uh, that yeah, that second trip was yeah. was um, um, you know vacation basically. Okay, that's it. <laughs> yeah, that's it. go to there, experience India, and 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 uh, and just and just do that. And then the third time was another tabla intensive. And yeah. uh, actually, the second time I I had gone to so the first time I went to Kolkata. The second time I went to um, Delhi, and then uh, spent most of the time in Varanasi. Okay. And then also into the uh, Himalayas in, in Nepal. But in Varanasi, that was, that was, that's a really special city. That's actually the oldest city in India. And it's on the Ganges. So it's, it's a really spiritually um, uh, and culturally rich place. Hmm. And uh, just like really mystical. And um, so my third trip to India, I decided to go back to Varanasi and um, with tabla, there's uh, what's called garanas, which is basically basically just means schools of thought, right? Uh, for the tabla, so um, there's seven main garanas. There's Farukabad, which is where you know that's what Samir represents Farukabad garana from like, uh, West Bengal, Calcutta area. Okay. And then there's Delhi garana, Punjab garana, Lucknow garana, etc. And they all just basically relate to the areas that these tabla traditions came from. Okay. So in Varanasi, it's called Benaras Garana. And uh, those tabla compositions are sort of defined by um, a little bit more of like an aggressive aesthetic, laying into the, uh, the bass drum. It's called Bayan, yeah. a little bit more. And also, um, uh, as it relates to Farukabad, uh, compositions that are typically a little bit shorter, and uh yeah play with that a little bit more aggressive aesthetic and i wanted to get to know that a little bit better so um and uh so i went there without having any plan at all i was just yeah. like I'm, gonna go, I'm just gonna go and it's gonna work out and i'm just gonna like learn tabla <laughs> so i was dude it was, it was crazy man yeah. i love the story so like the the, fir the first so i was super jet lagged by the time i got there like um oh man so many crazy stories <laughs> um sorry I'm, I'm my mind's going all over the place right now no that's a lot to take in and like that's a, <laughs> that's amazing but anyway so you get there you're jet lagged 
jet lag. I wake up at four in the morning and I like, can't go back to sleep. And like um, uh, that night, they hadn't locked the gates at the uh, at the place I was staying. It's yeah. called Sing Guest House. And um, so I got up and I uh, just started walking around and followed the sound. There was like this 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 weird man. Oh, this the uh it was it was like it was it was amazing just to yeah. give you like a sense of like what it was like it was like um uh the guest house was um you know just just a minute's walk from the ganges and then you get to the ganges and there's these like massive steps going down to the river and um in the distance there's like uh this this like drony kind of sound and there's like uh dogs with fleas and like bite marks all over them just like like walking around and like um like um bobbit like you know smoking hash like off in this corner and like people like huddle around the fire like in this corner up here and like um this like you know it's still dark the sun's like just starting to like um like illuminate the sky like just like tiny little bit and this fog is just like rolling down the Ganges. Yeah. And That's I'm a scene, just like, <laughs> dude, it was really something. And, and, um, so, I'm, so I walk about <laughs> half an hour toward the sound and, uh, realize that there's a performance going on. Like it's a, a morning Raga performance. And, uh, it turned out that at this, um, at this location, uh, they have morning Raga and yoga every morning so so i went there and like uh got there about five or six a.m and uh caught the last bit of this performance and the tower player was just incredible and after the performance i went up to him and asked him if he taught tabla and he spoke english and he was like yeah so 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 i went and studied with him every, every day I would yeah. like walk to his place um, every day, study with him, go back, and and uh, I would practice at this place called uh, Music Paradise, which was a little bit closer to the place where I was staying. Yeah, and uh, so that was the third time, and uh, fourth time. That's amazing! All per chance finding this guy. Anyway, so fourth time. Yeah, um, yeah his name's Keyshore, and then uh, the fourth time I went uh, with my girlfriend at the time to do. Uh, another music intensive yeah. and sh- uh, she's a vocalist so oh, um, okay interesting i got a little bit of voice lesson nice and uh we basically went there with the intention of just having another uh musical immersion so and, uh, um yeah. when you went initially when uh for studying tabla were you studying in like the carnatic side of things or the hindustanic side of things or kind of a mix of both um it was uh it was all um uh, Hindustani. Okay. Yeah. Hindustani. Actually, it wasn't until the fourth time I went to India that I actually went to the south where they have Carnatic music. Yeah, yeah, which is much. Well, that. To... Sorry, I didn't mean to talk over oh, you. No. I was going to no, say no, that, you're good. that would make sense because if you're learning, like, uh, if you're singing, you're going to be singing like the the scriptures and like a, a um, learning it that way, right? So was that more a Carnatic study, or was it all still um, in the Hindustanic side of it? Um, <clears throat> Um, well, uh, in India, the history of music in India is interesting. It's right. like, the, you know, basically without the mountain range in the middle of India, 
like these like rolling hills and also the western uh, they're called ghats also called yeah. ghats it's like these rolling hills where a lot of the spices are grown without that without these hills and mountains there wouldn't be so much Divide. of a difference between okay. Hindustani and Carnatic music it, it served as like a cultural barrier for hundreds yeah. of years where like um, you know Sanskrit and the and the Vedas and the musical tradition and schools of thought sort of had their foundation already mm. you know in in like in in the in the texts and also in in poetry in india it's 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 really something like the like the idol there like the um sort of like the uh, what, what's the word for it basically everyone like is like all about this poet tagore who's like okay. the fa- foundation of like so many of the uh, so much of the content that's actually in these ragas and and uh, and the music traditional music of India, and uh, so like a lot of these compositions is just like really beautiful. Like the words is just like really beautiful poetry, and like everyone's all about it. <laughs> it's super cool. Um, so that that tradition is in Kardak music, you know, oh, as okay. it is Hindustani music. Okay. Um, but the aesthetics and like what people agree upon and like what is like pure and um, all that, like, you know, there's like that um, purist, uh, I guess you call them purists, that that basically that music is supposed to be a certain way. Yeah. And um, uh, for example, like when the British came and they, they, they brought the harmonia, which is 12 tone. Uh, instrument basically made oh, out just piano. like piano yeah and uh it was accepted by some and kind of shunned by others like there's there's uh these things called shrutis which is basically in in between notes and it's based on a 22 note system instead of 12 and they're saying like oh like you can't play the raga correctly because like it doesn't have the shrutis so like yeah. you can only play these ragas and like even then like it's just a monophonic you know it's like um the you know tradition of like every instrumental tradition when it comes to Hindustani uh, Indian classical music stems from the vocal tradition, basically taking this uh, uh, voice repertoire and emulating it on instruments like sitar and sarod and bansuri and harmonium can't really can't really you know it's not it's not as much like a like expressive as like a vocal like instrument as like a sitar or sarod or bansari where you can actually bend notes and and play the music the way it was intended you know yeah. uh, originally intended to be played um so i'm kind of going off no that kind of so that one example so gotcha yeah. so that kind of like it started the the, the differentiating the, the the divide in a way, even though it's kind of everyone has the same respect for this beautiful poetry in the Vadas and the Sanskrit that can be found in both. Um, the southern end of uh, stayed more traditional, where the northern end did not, and it accepted um, some of these. I would say more or less. It's okay. just that they just evolved in different ways. Gotcha. Yeah, it's hard. To, like what I did was kind of like try to like summarize a whole entire culture, which is you know kind of insensitive and impossible to do but <laughs> no no i mean well the thing uh, the thing about indian classical music is that it's it's uh it's 
it's like it's um devotional music you right. know like even like the practice of the instruments is 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 intended to be devotional and uh an illustration um and also a uh 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 gift to you know brahma shiva um basically a, a way of um expressing the inherent beauty of nature you know we talked about like um concept of macro rhythms and stuff like that and right. in indian music there's there's this huge uh huge influence of that concept of duality you know like night and day uh masculine feminine and things like that so um existence non-existence and uh things like that like even in top in tabla repertoire like the language of the tabla is like very much like um a lot of co compositions that is like a theme and then basically a mirror reflection of that theme. Yeah. I had this one top of teacher in Varanasi say like, like the first half is masculine, but the last half is feminine, hmm. like different, like aesthetic qualities. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I just thought that was, I really think that's, that's interesting. That it, it's, it's, it's like a totally different school of thought. It's like so different. Right. Right, it's like a weird yin and yang, weird yin and yang like yeah. approach to, to tone. Like that's usually what maybe in American music would be see would be seen in like someone's career. You know, like if you look at the early Coltrane to later Coltrane, it's one thing to a next, but like within a single piece, that's really it's it's dense, man. So where did um where while wow, this is all going on, how do you find time to do this while Moon Hooch is touring and like recording like w w when was this even able or was this all before or was this like how um well every uh we would get a break like every winter yeah and actually i, I missed out on family christmas one year to do the tabla intensive yeah <laughs> <laughs> and i remember feeling like so like alone and like right. lonely and sort of like depressed at that time i was like really wanted to be with my family when christmas came around and like being in, on the other side of the world right and like deciding to like do this venture i was just having like feelings of like doubt and like like is this the right thing like should i be doing this why am i like making the sacrifice but yeah <laughs> you know it's something for something um yeah, for sure. but every every winter uh we we would go through a period of not touring you know like around the holidays okay and uh so the other three times i went to india I, it was in um either before christmas or right after so either in january or in december gotcha and how long were these trips were they like a week a month uh the first one was two weeks okay second one was uh one month wow or five weeks yeah and the the third one was uh, uh also a month and then the fourth time was also a month yeah and that fourth one had to be like super like super uh, uh like because you're going there to learn how to like sing and not even like in a way like a, whole, a completely different culture of singing you know what i mean like that had to be pretty intimidating because at least with like tabla you kind of had some like duh. and i'm sure at that point you had more you're ready to handle it but like you know you came a little bit more prepared than maybe like as a vocalist or, or trying to uh, feel the, those intonations in a different way I wouldn't say it, it was intimidating. I I just I just uh I just love the music and yeah. I didn't have any like pressure to like be like a great Indian singer. I'm just like 
interested like generally um in that music and right. you know I, I didn't have i don't have like ambitions to like make a career as an sure. indie vocalist <laughs> you know what i mean yeah yeah still it's, um, it's uncomfortable like, about it. yeah yeah <laughs> that's so badass that's so cool and i think that just speaks so highly of you as a, a creative to like dive into this thing like what are you doing when you're not being creative indulging in different ways to do it that's so fucking awesome <laughs> Wow, man! It's been, it's been awesome. I love Indian music, man. It's it's uh, yeah, it, man. The first time I heard like the first time Indian music made an impression on me, it was like really similar to the feeling. You keep going, we keep coming back to Coltrane. Yeah, <laughs> same feeling I get when I listen to Coltrane. Like that that feeling of like divinity and like truth. Right. In a way. Like even like Coltrane's got that. Um, there's that quote with um music being like a, oh, a reservoir right and you can only dive deeper into it and like be immersed in it and like when you're drawing from the reservoir of coltrane that's what he's drawing from you're drawing from this tradition of like deepness and like like spiritual fulfillment and like it makes sense that you would keep going back to that you know what i mean like and i it, there's so many like he's been that Coltrane's been that figure for so many people and it's that that just speaks on to his his legacy and how important his music is and how much it gives yes. back now that even no he's not around too um well damn well james we've been at it for like two hours my friend this has been fucking awesome Dude, this has been great i feel like no time has passed <laughs> i know uh, like oh man um they kind of like wrap it up and you, we don't have to get into this, but like when you moved past Moonhooch to where you are now, um, was it like what, what brought about that? Was it like creative stunt or was it like just separating ways? And we don't have to get into that. We can bypass that if you don't want to. Um, no, I can talk about that. Um, you know, there were just, uh, there are, were definitely um, some uh, creative differences, you know. Yeah. Like uh, Moonhooch was was a was a you know sacrifice in, in many ways, and and a sacrifice that I don't have any any regrets in. You know, like it's right. you know not not that there like weren't like painful moments along the way because like you know whenever whenever you're in a band, especially like at the at the amount that we were touring and the amount of time we were spending together um there's that possibility for like you know um for you know emotions to to get in the way of the music right. and uh, it was it was happening to uh you know such an extent that um that i was feeling like um like i wasn't being true to myself or like, um, uh, and you know, I don't want to get personal about yeah, it, yeah. but you know, like also like, um, we all wanted different things right. out of the band, you know, in kind of a fundamental way. Um, and that brought about a lot of, uh, a lot of, um, dissonance. Gotcha. And, uh, you know, like, um, it was 10 years and, and we did like some amazing, amazing things and, made like like i i love all of our recordings I, I love the music we made i love the things that i learned like musical and not yeah experience 
and uh it just yeah it just came came time to to um what's the word indulge in something else (laughs) or uh yeah just it was just you know it was time for a change yeah 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 no that's uh, that makes sense i say that with an ounce of like hesitation and a little bit of feeling of shame and guilt because like um you know like i i made some some big mistakes at the time that i left and yeah was in in a pretty emotionally vulnerable place and and wasn't wasn't my best self you know yeah so uh but uh yeah but that's one of those things you can't like when you're in it right when you're experiencing whatever emotion it is you got to be kind of immersed fully in it and if not that creeps up somewhere else like if there's this resentment and like that's or that's the key you don't want to lead to a resentment you kind of want to be in that thing let it exist let it take over you and so you can experience or or analyze it later and, and come to that conclusion that you just said right now that you weren't your best self and there's regret about that but like it'd be way shittier if if you were still like i don't know eaten up by it and letting it out in ways that you maybe wouldn't want to, you know? Yeah. Well, um, I'm totally comfortable talking about it now, you know, like enough time has passed where I'm like, not, not in like the emotional soup that I was in, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, dealing with feelings of like, um, uh, doubt and like, um, and, uh, just like pain, you know, just like feelings of like, like, um, existential and also like, what do I believe in? Like, what, what is like, what is, is, is this a growth opportunity for me anymore? Like, is this a sacrifice that I'm comfortable with? You know, questions like that. And, um, now that enough time has passed, I, I, uh, I know I made the right decision. Gotcha. Yeah. Cause that's, that's, you know, just as like cool as or amazing is that spark that led to all these opportunities i can see where it would eat you up thinking that that maybe i you know missed the miss the thing missed the train or whatever missed the whatever analogy but that's a, that's awesome that you've realized it's leading to more personal growth and it's leading to something cooler and more james oh thanks man me too <laughs> <laughs> well damn man yeah fuck this has been amazing james i really appreciate your time um and and sharing those stories with me like it's with this one it was kind of tricky because we're friends and like uh you know we hang out and talk uh more more so than other people i've interviewed so it's it's kind of hard to like do research on your friend you know what i mean like <laughs> but um sure. I, yeah you, you know you know the you know the the you know, like, you know, we know each other. <laughs> right. Yeah. And we play yeah. together and it's, it's cool. And like, it's just weird to like, it's different. It's a different thing. Cause I, it's hard to like, be like, I'm going to look into details about my friend. Cause you feel weird. Like that just comes up in conversation and that's uh-huh. the beauty of conversation, right? You learn more about your friends or about who you're interacting with by engaging in that. And like, um, when it's like something like this, where like a podcast where maybe I don't know the person, and you got to find those talking points. It's weird to do it when you know the person, <laughs> you know what I mean? But this is, I, I really much enjoyed hearing, hearing all your, from point A to point B and how Coltrane was involved in every, every, every chance he could be and still is. 
So this has been badass. Man, thanks so much for for taking the time to to not only you know have me on, but to ask me all these awesome questions. Like, I, you know, you know what I like to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> Was well, it? At, I'm super excited for for Valentine's Day for the Valentine's Day release. Me too. Um, was it it's gonna where's it come is it gonna be on all streaming platforms yeah okay cool cool man. yeah i'm sending it to uh you know about distro kid right yeah that's right yeah, we were talking so. about that at carries duh yeah that's right <laughs> yeah. you've been teaching online with students with drums and tabla if you want to elaborate on that and how people can reach out to you if they're interested in anything we've talked about how can they do such um yeah so i actually have this um it's a it's a it's well, something called Patreon. Right. Um, so this is something I, I've started to do um, in the past uh, couple of weeks um, as a way to sort of uh, attempt to get um, um, uh, more, more information about drumming and music out in a more efficient way. Right. Because uh, I love getting private lessons. You know, I feel like you can't really replace that teacher to student relationship. Um, and at the beginning I was like, well, Patreon seems a little bit like distant from the student. Like maybe it's not going to be as relevant, right? but, um, actually it's, I think it's, it's, it's great because it, um, you know, you can sign up for different tiers, basically a first, first tier membership gets you, um, four pre-recorded, ah, pre-recorded lessons, um, covering, uh, a wide range of topics. And um, my goal is to like, create information that's that's applicable to a wide range of musicians and drummers. But uh, second tier um, gets you a private lesson once uh, a month on top of those four pre-recorded. And then also there's a, a once a month question, live question and answer where um, students can get the opportunity to ask me anything. Gotcha. Some so, so Patreon is one way, and then if if you want to reach out to me uh, directly for private lessons, um, and then the third the third tier is um, everything, and then also a weekly private lesson. Gotcha. Uh, but uh, you can hit me up on my email, which is jamesmushler at gmail dot com, which is no uh, with no spaces. Yeah. Um, or uh, on Instagram is also good on my okay. Instagram. Yeah. So, with uh, what's your Patreon called? Is it just James Mushler? Patreon.com uh, or? Yeah, exactly. It's uh, oh, okay. patreon.com slash James Mushler. Gotcha. Gotcha. Awesome, man. Cool beans. All right, man. Well, I'm going to hit a pause on the, the recording. So, uh, thanks for talking with me. Dude, love you, brother. Love you too, man.